So we are starting this new workshop series on the mystics, and it is not <laughs> lost on me how that word mystic could really strike fear into the hearts of, of many Christians. And in fact, when we first started um, uh, promoting and just letting people know about this class, I got a phone call from someone who was concerned about the M word, concerned about the word mystic, and wanted to talk about it. And uh, when we put it up as a, as a Facebook event, we got a few comments that were less than kind. And so it's true. And, you know, we know that this word is a flashpoint uh, in conservative Christian circles, as is the word contemplative uh, as well. So what I thought it would be a good thing to do, since the effect is based on the contemplative way of living, that we discuss this and, and talk about it and get it out into the open so that we can figure out what's going on. Now, obviously, if the effect is based on the contemplative way, you kind of know where I'm coming from before I even start. But what I'm going to try to do is really just present a fair and balanced uh, picture. You know, what do both sides believe? What's going on here? So that we can look at the issues and then make our own decisions about what we think is going on. But as always, everything that we're going to talk about here is going to be scripturally based because that is our gold standard. That's what we are going to be looking at. So, you know, what is the bias? What is the problem that, uh, that Christians, more conservative Christians, typically evangelical Christians, have? This second word that, that I introduced right now, contemplative, now, we use contemplative and mystic here almost interchangeably, but there is a difference, and it's probably worth kind of pointing that out. Um, let's take a look. If you have your inserts, you can read along with me. But the definition of contemplation of the contemplative tradition from Thomas Keating, who is one of the uh, Trappist monks who developed the Centering Prayer Method back in the 70s and so on and so forth. But they have a very interesting definition that I think is worth us going through. Though it has acquired other meanings and connotations in recent centuries, the word contemplation had a specific meaning for the first 16 centuries of the Christian era. So for 1,600 years, contemplation was understood in a certain way. It's really been since the Reformation, the, the Protestant Reformation starting in the early 1500s, that things have moved, especially in the West, into a very intellectual area, very intellectual understanding of our faith. And, and the, and the the idea of contemplation has really been lost. And it wasn't until Thomas Merton in the 40s that he, start, through his writings, started to bring it back into our culture. St. Gregory the Great summed up this meaning at the end of the 6th century as the knowledge of God that is impregnated with love. Ah, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> and that's, that's the thing. You know, when, when you're talking about mystical concepts, it's so difficult to put them into words. And everybody does the best that they can. But what this means to me, the knowledge of God impregnated with love, means that the contemplative way is engaging everything that it means for us to be human. It's not just the intellect. It's not just the mind. It's not just mental knowledge that we're talking about here. But it's also the imprint in our emotions. It's the imprint in our, in our spiritual being. It's, it's the, the soul, if you will, that's connected to the emotional center. All of that, everything is firing. There is nothing left untouched. When we bring our whole selves 
to the process of connecting with God, rather than just our minds, rather than just connecting through the printed word, then something else happens. It changes the nature of the relationship, changes the nature of the experience that we're having. For Gregory, contemplation was both the fruit of reflecting on the word of God in scripture and a precious gift of God. So what is he saying there? He's saying part of this is actively acquired. We study, we read, we start to learn. But part of it is simply actively received. Now, this is not a passive reception. It's not just us sitting back. It's us actively clearing away a space. If you're going to get a gift, what do you do? You clear a space to put the gift on. Something that's going to go on your mantle, something that's going to go on your shelf, you clear a space for it. You create a place of honor for it if the gift is that important to you. And so contemplation is both the acquiring of knowledge that we need in order to proceed, but it's also a clearing for the gift that we have no control over. That part is a gift. We don't acquire it. We receive it. So it's a receiving, but also with the dependent humility of understanding that there are parts of this relationship that we can't manufacture. We can't get out and and grab by the throat and make ours. They are a gift of God. And he referred to contemplation as resting in God. And in this resting, the mind and heart are not so much seeking God as beginning to experience what they have been seeking. That may sound like a real fine nuance there, but think about what he's saying. In contemplation, we are not still seeking God, we're experiencing God. In other words, God isn't out there someplace that we're still striving after and trying to find. He is a gift that's already available to be experienced right here and right now. And that's a very different experience. Jesus said that the waiting is over, the kingdom is here in Mark 1.15. And that's basically what is going on here. The waiting is over. We don't have to wait for something else. There's nothing contingent upon this anymore. God's presence is here. God's presence is now. In contemplation, we are experiencing that presence. We're not still trying to learn something about that presence and seek Him as if he were somewhere else. Very, very important. The state, this state, is not the suspension of all activity, but the reduction of many acts and and reflections to a single act or thought in order to sustain one's consent to God's presence and action. In other words, we're not just doing the negative. We're not just clearing everything out and there's nothing going on, but we're reducing all of that stuff that's going on in our heads, all that stuff that's going out on around us that that draws our, our attention in so many directions, all of the urgencies, all of the details. We're drawing them down to one place. It's still a positive focus on God's presence, but it's shutting out all that other noise, all that thing. So it's not a negation. It's still positive, but it's focused. It's present. It's here. It's now. Where was I? Sustain one's consent. To uh, This state is not the suspension of all activity, but the reduction of many acts and reflections to a single act or thought to sustain one's consent to God's presence and action. In this traditional understanding, contemplation or contemplative prayer is not something that can be achieved through will, but rather is God's gift. 
It is the opening of mind and heart, one's whole being, to God. Contemplative prayer is a process of interior transformation. It is a relationship initiated by God and leading, if one consents, to divine union. So this is what we mean by contemplative. Now, a mystic does basically the same thing, but kind of on steroids, if you will. All right? So the mystic is doing the same thing that we just described, but a mystic is taking it to the extreme sometimes. It depends on the mystic. But often the mystic has very extreme lifestyles. Julian of Norwich lived sealed in what was called the anchorage of her church, a sealed room that she didn't leave for decades at the end of her life. They passed food into her and things. And people would come and, and through a window talk to her and get advice and get prayers and so on and so forth. But that was her function. That's pretty extreme. And many of these mystics had ecstatic experiences with God. And what do we mean by an ecstatic experience? Let me read you this definition so we can try to get it right. A religious ecstatic experience is an altered state of consciousness, greatly reduced, it's characterized by greatly reduced external awareness, so we kind of lose focus so much on the surroundings, but with an expanded interior and mental and spiritual awareness, often with visions and emotional and physical euphoria, but not always. These words behind me, be still and know that I am God, could be an expression of an ecstatic experience. Maybe without the euphoria, without all the bells and whistles, but just that intense knowing that we know that we know that we are in God's presence, that nothing separates us from that presence. So contemplatives may not include some of the ecstatic experiences or the extremes of the mystic, but they're focused in the same direction. They're doing the same thing, and that's why we are kind of using those terms somewhat interchangeably, but we refer to ourselves as trying to follow a contemplative lifestyle rather than a mystical one. All right? So why the controversy? Why is this word such a problem and a bias in evangelical circles? Well, two camps have now formed. One of them is basically defending mysticism at all costs defending mysticism even at the expense of logical and theological integrity. And that's an extreme that we want to avoid. On the other side, mysticism and contemplation are just an absolute evil that needs to be stamped out. And that's an extreme that we want to avoid. The truth is never at the extremes anyway. What we want to do is bring those ideas and concepts that are useful into a balanced center so that we are not losing the logical and theological integrity that we need in order to be a people of faith, to have repeatable results as we make choices in life. But at the same time, not shelve ourselves off to this ability of ours as human beings to connect with God's presence absolutely and concretely right here and right now. So in order to figure this all out, I think we need to understand first the reasons for the fight. And what I did was... um, kind of put together excerpts from three articles that I found from conservative Christians that were talking about and, and, you know, rebutting and refuting contemplation and mysticism. And let's see if we can kind of work our way through this and, and get our hands on what's really going on here. This first one, what is contemplative spirituality, is from a, a Christian uh, ministry that, that is basically just answering questions for people. And their answer is this. What is contemplative spirituality? It's an extremely dangerous practice for any person who desires to live a biblical, God-centered life. 
In practice, contemplative spirituality is primarily centered on meditation, although not meditation with a biblical perspective. Passages such as Joshua 1.8 actually exhort us to meditate. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Notice what the focus of the meditation should be, the Word of God. Contemplative spirituality-driven meditation focuses on nothing literally. A practitioner is exhorted to completely empty his or her mind and just be. Supposedly, this helps one open up to a greater spiritual experience. However, we are exhorted in Scripture to transform our minds to that of Christ's, to have his mind. Emptying our minds is contrary to such active conscious transformation. Okay, pretty convincing argument. The trouble is it's based on a misunderstanding of what contemplative prayer and contemplative meditation would actually be. Remember, it's not a negative. We are not clearing everything out. We are not emptying everything out. We are limiting the distractions and coming to a positive focus on God's presence. So centering prayer meditation is doing that. So it's not just focusing on absolutely nothing, but a balance of reflecting on Scripture, right? But also on the gift of God, this gift of presence that we can't control and we can't acquire. We can only make ourselves available to it. You can't strive to acquire a gift, right? If the gift is freely given, it's given. But what we can do is clear that space for it that we were talking about. If we're always acquiring then we really can't receive. And if we do think that we've received something, if we're always in acquiring mode, then we feel entitled rather than grateful to whatever we think we get. Very different attitude, very different mindset. And not only that, the only way for us to transform our minds to the mind of Christ is to first let go of everything we already think we know and everything we think we already are in order to really be free and open to imprint everything that Christ is, everything that Jesus is. So the mindset of this critique is based on an intellectual, theological understanding of Scripture as the full expression of the gospel. But contemplation is looking at it, and I believe I will be able to show that Jesus is looking at the gospel as something much fuller, much more all-encompassing than mere intellectual understanding. The next article, the writer writes, I find myself increasingly grieved these days by what I see taking a place among those who profess to be evangelicals. Now what he's talking about, since this is cut midway into the article, he's talking about more and more contemplative practices that are being embraced, especially by the youngest generations in evangelical circles. And they tend to be Catholic traditions because Catholicism in the West has been the one branch of Christianity, also the Eastern Orthodox branch, that has maintained a meditative, mystical, and contemplative tradition with with all of the rituals and rites that deal with that. Well, young evangelicals, especially millennials, are finding that that kind of a a hole. There's a yearning for more inner experience. And so as they've been exposed to what's going on in these churches, they're adopting these practices, and he's grieved by that. He's a former Catholic who is also converted to Protestantism, so that gives you kind of his background as well. 
He says, I know the term evangelical has undergone radical changes regarding its meaning and practice. Yet when I use the term, I'm going by a very simple definition. So here's his definition of evangelical. I'm referring to those who claim to accept the Bible alone as their authority for knowing and receiving God's way of salvation and for living their lives in a way that is pleasing to him. Pretty narrow. But if you notice, we're starting to see a thread here. The Bible alone, the printed word, the intellectual understanding of that gospel is what he is defining as evangelical. But what really is an evangelical? You know, it's so hard to define that term. It was actually coined by Martin Luther. Did you know that? In the 1500s, Martin Luther coined the term evangelical to describe his movement, which later became Lutheranism. And by evangelical, he basically meant everyone who's not a Roman Catholic. Because he was in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church, right? A hundred years later, in the 1600s, led by people here in the colonies and also in Britain by, say, George Whitfield and, and Jonathan Edwards, evangelical was identified with revivalism. Revivalism was really what was driving it. By the 1950s and 60s, a historian said that evangelicals were anybody who liked Billy Graham. <laughs> But the interesting thing is that the Billy Graham, when he was asked what an evangelical was, he says, that's a question I'd like to ask somebody myself. You know, it's so hard to try to define. By the 1970s, when Jimmy Carter was elected president in 76 and declared himself a born-again Christian, then an evangelical was everyone who claimed to be born again. But by the 80s, evangelical was anyone who declared themselves to be a politically conservative Republican Christian. That was an evangelical. But by 1989, in 1989, there was a historian by the name of David Bebbington. And he came up with a definition of evangelical that had four points to it, four pillars. And it's now called the Bebbington Quadrilateral. Isn't that lovely? But he had, his four points were this. And this has been more or less accepted as the best description, even though it's still contested. The first of the four points is Biblicism, a high regard for the Bible. Then crucicentrism which is a focus on Jesus' crucifixion and its saving effects. The third is conversionism, a belief that humans need to be converted, born again. And activism, the belief that faith should influence one's public life. Well, if you take those four, a high regard for the Bible, a focus on, on Jesus' sacrifice, a belief that humans need to be converted or born again, and the belief that our faith should influence or inform our decisions, oh, I could be a, an evangelical even though they wouldn't have me. But yes, I could say I am one. You know, I know that I understand some of these things in different ways based on the Hebrew reading of the Gospels, but those are really all-inclusive. But what happens when you take one or more of those and pull them into extreme positions? That's where everything starts to go into a dualistic opposition. It's so interesting to me that younger people whether they're in the Catholic Church or whether they're in evangelical or Protestant denominations, seem to be pulling together in this ecumenical way. They're finding the common ground. And they're moving in a way that is driving them toward the inner experience that they feel has been lacking in their lives. Or they're doing it outside the church entirely. It's the old guard with these more extreme views of some of these issues that are holding the ground. And they, with everything in them, think it's what they need to do. But they are also keeping these groups of people apart from being able to find their connection to each other. 
Under the, uh, he continues, according to the word of God, anything that is added to Christ's finished work on the cross is a denial of the gospel, that Christ paid the full penalty for the sins of humanity. And by what he says is being added to the gospel are things of the Catholic tradition that are now being incorporated into evangelical worship services, like the Stations of the Cross, Ashes on the Forehead on Ash Wednesday, the construction of small prayer altars with candles, and incense burning, uh, prayer labyrinths, you know, it's, uh, areas that you can walk slowly in prayer, meditation itself, centering prayer, Lexio Divina. These are the practices that he sees as being added to the gospel. Catholic or Christian mysticism is thoroughly subjective and experiential, he says, that God can neither be known or understood through human reason, but only experienced, which is exactly what we do believe. And all the mystics believe that God is ineffable. God can't be contained in our minds. has to be experienced in real time. And as soon as we describe it with a thought or with words, we've already separated ourselves from that pure experience. But he says that is what the problem is. It is the antithesis of what the Bible teaches. And he quotes now Isaiah 1.18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. That's from Proverbs 4. Another one. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. That's 2 Peter 1.3. So he's giving us some scriptures that seem to be indicating that, yes, this really is about a mental understanding that we can know God this way and not necessarily through the experience, that the experience is subjective and it can lead us into dangerous areas. But I want to take a look especially at the Isaiah passage there. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Ah, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. That's the entire verse. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. The first word there, though, that is, that is translated as come, halach in, in Hebrew, literally means to walk or to follow. The next word that is translated as now is na. It, it's a word of entreaty. It means I beseech you, I pray you. And then the word that is translated as reason together is yacha. And that literally means to prove or to show. So you could paraphrase, come now, let us reason together, as I beseech you to walk with me. Walk with me now so that I can show you, that I can prove to you that your sins, even though they are scarlet, will be white as snow. That changes everything, doesn't it? Now, it's not that this passage can't be understood as reason together, because that's a valid translation, of course. But think about this. If you have wronged somebody, if you are looking for their, their what's the word on the forgiveness? Oh, my head, where's my head going? Mind is a terrible thing to waste. If you're looking for forgiveness, their verbal words to you, I forgive you, how much is that going to assuage what you're feeling inside? But after a time of living with them and, and working with them and seeing that they relate to you and accept you, that's where you understand that your sins, even though they were scarlet, are now white as snow. It's more experiential. And the same thing with wisdom and the same thing with knowledge. We've said this a hundred times in here, that wisdom and knowledge to, to a Jewish mind is not about mental understanding. 
It's about an intimate relationship, an intimate knowing, a familiarity that comes, and that the wisdom comes from the act of mercy and compassion and living with other people and living out those relationships. And so really, again, the interpretation of these passages as being intellectual comes in large part from the intellectual filter through which the passages were interpreted in the first place. Because to a Jew, it's much more boots on the ground. That's where they live and that's where they understand. He continues, Furthermore, the goal of mysticism is union with God. That is the merging of one's soul into God. This is an impossibility, he says, that reveals mysticism's pantheistic and panentheistic roots, that God is everything and is in everything. No. God is infinite and transcendent, absolutely separate from his finite creation. Wow. Okay. He's saying that God is transcendent above and absolutely separate from his finite creation. So you think when you think about this, this dualistic thinking, we believe that God is transcendent. But take a look at Psalm 139. Your spirit is everywhere I go. I cannot escape your presence. There is also this tempering in the scripture themselves that God is everywhere. God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. And imminent means infused into part of everything that is. So for him to say that God is transcendent only is, again, this dualistic thinking. You know, it's not what we believe, but it is a firmly held belief. And you can see why, then, mysticism would be a threatening doctrine, then. If it is trying to take us into a subjective way of understanding or adding to what we understand from God from Scripture, but also trying to create a union with God, if it's not believed that that's possible, you know, this is... This is something that has to be considered. So, he has a point, though. We are not saying that we are identical with God. God is transcendent, and we are his creation. But we're created to be in complete connection as well, even as we're dependent at the same time. In other words, we're not our own higher power. And in non-Christian tradition, sometimes the mysticism takes that form where everything is within You know, there really is no higher power outside of what's within. That's not what we're saying. We are absolutely aware. I remember when I was in high school, one of the monks who taught me said, you got to get your arms wrapped around your own creaturehood. He said, you got to embrace your creaturehood. You know, I love that. I still remember that after 45 years, whatever it's been now. But that's it. We have to embrace our creaturehood. We are creatures of God. But we are beloved creatures of God, and that makes all the difference, Right? We are not God, but God has engineered this in such a way that we can know him in the Hebrew sense. We can connect. And what does Jesus say at John 17? I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. It's hard to see how it could get any plainer than that. 
Jesus is praying the great prayer at John 17 before he goes to Gethsemane and the cross that all of us, all of us will be one with him and with each other as he is one with the Father. The last article takes a more practical route. He writes, My emphasis is upon what has become so common today in evangelicalism, this constant reference to God communicating with people through what seems like every way imaginable with the exception of the Scriptures. Oftentimes, folks speak of being led to do this or that, or that God has told them not to do this or that. I have been told by well-meaning evangelicals that I have to listen to the still, small voice of God. And I have to confess, that was confusing to me when I was starting out, with people always talking about hearing from God this morning to do this or to that. And it's like, well, what am I, chopped liver? Because I don't hear that voice. What's going on here? What am I doing wrong? And it was their way of expressing their connection with God. Okay, he's taking issue with this. The problem with this is that scriptures never command me to look inward for direction, but rather to look to the revealed word of God. Believers are given the scripture to be equipped and instructed for every good work. We are told to meditate upon it so that we may have knowledge, wisdom, and understanding cultivated. Once again, the passages that he's quoting here from Timothy and Psalms and Proverbs have been interpreted intellectually only and not with that Hebrew understanding of knowledge as an intimate experience. But intimacy brings experience inside not as the source of a new revelation, but as a point of connection with the revelation that is our God. I hope that nuance different makes sense. What they're concerned about is that mysticism is opening another source of revelation that stands completely outside the printed word of God. And that can be in conflict. That can lead us in error. That can lead us in wrong directions. But that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're purposing to do as we live our contemplative practice, we are trying to tap into the same source of revelation. It will be subjective, yes, because it's us with God alone. And it will be somewhat maybe unspecific. But it's not meant to establish doctrine or authority. It's meant for something quite different. And this is where he's going next. John MacArthur, he's quoting, from our sufficiency in Christ. Ironically, a new breed of self-appointed prophets has arisen. These religious quacks tout their own dreams and visions with a different phrase, the Lord told me, quote-unquote. That is mysticism, and it preys on people looking for some secret truth that will add to the simplicity of God's all-sufficient, once-for-all delivered word. And you know what? Yeah, he has a point. There are people who claim to be prophets that are doing great damage and maybe even manipulating people for their own gain. But because there are some people that are doing it that way or doing it badly, doesn't negate that the Old Testament prophets were doing the same thing, right? All the prophets said that they spoke for God. That's a definition of a prophet. Not that he tells the future, but that he is delivering the mind of God. And Jesus had a test for good and bad prophets, didn't he? He said, you're going to know the good prophet, you're going to know the true prophet by the fruit. And so there is a way that we can discern if we're paying attention, if we're not so codependent that we're just looking for the things that we want out of whomever shows up in front of our doorstep, then we can apply those tests and we can know how we're supposed to react to people who are saying such things. He finally quotes B.B. Warfield 
and he says that uh, Warfield used to distinguish Christianity from all pagan religions in that it was a religion that was revealed from the outside in, whereas pagan mysticism is revealed from the inside out. Bible believers understand that their hearts are more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. That's from Jeremiah. And unable to be understood. As a result, not only the source of the revelation is to be questioned, but also the interpretation. This was, it was fascinating to me that they believe that Christianity is a religion that's revealed from the outside in. And yet Jesus over and over emphasizes that the kingdom is experienced from the inside out. Right? Jesus at Luke 17, verse 20, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation, neither will they say, look, here, look, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And that word can also be translated among you or in your midst. But the idea is it's already here. It's already within. We're going to experience it from the inside out, even though, yes, God is still transcendent. See, it's not either or. It's going to be both and. It's going to be pulling those extremes to a balanced center. That's what we're looking for, this middle way through, where with full integrity and full common sense, we can still have the full experience that Jesus calls kingdom. And take a look at Paul at 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 10. For us, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Revealed what through the Spirit? In the previous verse, things which eye have not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. All these great things that God has. For to us, God revealed these things through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Paul is telling us there are some things that can only be known non-rationally through connection with Spirit, through connection with, with God. But the article writer also has another good point. When Christians put their subjective impressions on authoritative levels... They, regardless of motives, undermine the authority, sufficiency, and purpose of Scripture. Our fallen minds and hearts are never prescribed in the Bible to direct our steps. This task is reserved to the Holy Spirit, inspired, sure word of Scripture. And he's absolutely right. These subjective impressions have to be carefully considered, especially if they're ever going to be taken to the level of public authority. And our history shows that groups of people have fallen into every kind of ruin by following these kinds of people. Think Jonestown, all right? Drinking the Kool-Aid came from that. That's the problem if we do that. But this is not the purpose of contemplation. The purpose of contemplation is not to set new doctrine. The purpose of contemplation is to connect on an individual level deeply with our God so that we know that we know that the things of Scripture are true in a way that we would never know by just reading them third person. It's giving us a first-person connection with the truth that drives the foundations of our house deep into the bedrock. It's in connection with Scripture 
not in contrary to it. That's the whole point here. So what are the differences? If we had to summarize everything that I've gone through, what are the differences in the viewpoint? The first one, that contemplation is a complete emptying of ourselves, which is contrary to transforming our minds to Christ versus a balance of reflection on Scripture and clearing a space for the gift of God's presence. Second, Scripture is the only way of knowing God versus a balance of intellectual and experiential or spiritual or non-rational knowing. Third, humans can't become one with God, God who remains absolutely separate from his creation, versus the idea that God is here now, imminent, through all all creation, and unitable with us. And last, Christianity is only revealed from the outside in, mysticism from the inside out, versus a balance of both. It's always going to be the balance. So, are we going to settle this dispute this morning? Of course not, right? But what does Scripture actually show us? Does Scripture show us anything about this contemplation we're talking about? Take a look in your inserts, or up on the, how are we doing with time? Gosh, we're going long. Okay, as quickly as I can. 1 Corinthians 2.10, this is Paul again. Oh, that's the one we already read, good. 2 Corinthians 12, 2. <laughs> I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and he's talking about himself in the third person, right? Whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. A classic mystical experience, ecstatic experience, to be caught up, transported to the third heaven, to the Jew that was the actual throne of God above the the air and the clouds and the stars, the third heaven, to be transported and see what is there that he can't even express in words, mystical experience. Matthew 17, verse 1, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Mystic experience. Ecstatic experience. Acts 2, 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Mystical experience, direct connection with God, the ability to speak other tongues. Mystical experience. I didn't have room for this one, but Revelation, the entire book of Revelation, is an ecstatic mystical experience. Just take a look at one passage from chapter 1, starting at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That means he was already in this altered state, right? This connection with God. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And the whole book 
is an account of the visions that he has seen. The Old Testament talks about that the old man will have, the old young man will have visions and the old men will dream dreams. This is a huge part. The prophets were all having the ecstatic visions. The book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, they are all ecstatic visions. Jesus in the wilderness was a mystical experience as he directly faced the adversary in those three temptations. Mary and the angel Gabriel, when Gabriel comes and tells her that she has been impregnated by the Holy Spirit, mystical experience. The Magi following the star. Joseph's dream that led him to Egypt to to get away from the murderous King Herod. Cornelius, who who was not even a Jew, not not any kind of follower of Jewish law or, or even of Jesus, has a visit from an angel. Peter has the vision of the sheep that comes down from heaven and containing the unclean animals and the voice saying, Peter, take and eat, because he was trying, the, the whole idea was that he needed to connect with the Gentile followers of Jesus. Joseph's visions in the Old Testament, part of them were prognostications, telling something of the future, and part of them were telling things that needed to be known for various purposes. Moses and the burning bush, and it goes on and on and on. The Bible is a mystical book, no doubt about it. It is filled in both testaments with mystical events. All of these are pointing us in a direction. Jesus' mode of prayer to retreat into the wilderness and to be silent and away from the crowds was pure contemplative prayer. And when he tells us that when we pray, not like the heathen do, not like the Pharisees do, shouting on the street corners, that we're supposed to retire to our inner rooms... And there, know God, and God will know us. Contemplative practice. This is what the Bible is showing us. But there's a question here that needs to be answered. Did God allow these mystical events and these things to happen to the ancients who wrote our scriptures, but now has cut it off and is no longer available today? Because there's many Christians who believe that. The gifts of the Spirit and all these things that happened in biblical times are no longer available to us now. That's a question that you'll have to answer for yourself as you consider all of this. But if that were true, then there's 2,000 years of Christian experience and Christian reports of all sorts of mystical events and practices that have to be rendered false, even though they fall right into the same pattern that we see in Scripture. I know, it's a loaded question that I'm asking here because my beliefs are probably pretty transparent to you all by now, right? But I'm hoping that I wasn't too heavy-handed with it. I'm hoping that I presented both sides fairly, even though you know where I'm coming down. But I wanted you all to just understand, what is the nature of this? Do we have to be afraid of the word mystical? Mystical strikes so much terror just by association into many Christians' hearts because it's connected supposedly with the occult, with the devil or demonology or all these things. The way it is practiced in Christian tradition Nothing could be further from the truth. And there is nothing to be afraid of in it, even if you don't feel that it's for you or contemplation is for you. At least there's nothing to fear about it. And that's the most important thing that we need to understand here right now. We're trying to navigate a middle way, always grounded in Scripture. Everything I gave you just now and everything I give you every Sunday is always grounded in Scripture. Because if we leave that standard, we're really blowing in the wind. But the scripture at the same time is showing us this ability that we have as God's creation and loved, beloved people to connect with him here and now. And get 
an experience of the truth that is ours, first person, that connects with the written word, amplifies it and solidifies it for us. I guess the, well, how, what I want to close with is just to let you know from my own personal story. You know, I was baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church in middle, or middle school, grade school. You know, it wasn't called middle school back then. I was, uh, had a first communion and I was confirmed. And then out of high school, I entered a religious order and didn't stay long, left that. And in my 30s, I was baptized again in the evangelical church. And all of that experience didn't take me where the beginning of my contemplative practice took me. As soon as I started to value silence and solitude, as soon as I started to practice the, the quiet, something started to change in me. There was a knowing of God. There was even an emotional reaction that I didn't have before as I was studying all of these things, and I was doing all of these ritual practices. Something changed, and I turned a corner, and it has made all the difference in my life. Call it born again, call it whatever you want, but there has been such a qualitative difference to my relationship with God, a sense of connection with God, a sense of just knowing that I am okay, even when everything, evidence to the contrary, is present in my life. I know that I'm okay because of these repeated connections with God in the most seemingly insignificant and silent ways in my life. It has made all the difference. I can't tell you. When I say I love Jesus now, it means something very different than when I said it as part of the Baltimore Catechism or I said it as part of any other ritual practice. I ran across, just to end on this, a... uh, a journal entry that I wrote back on September 9th, 1993. So it's been a few days. I had a meeting with my pastor yesterday, a good man, a good meeting. He asked me what my recent reading, study, and contemplation had taught me. Just three things is all he wanted. And they came right off the top of my head. I said that there is a huge gap between activity for God, statements about God, and experience of God. It is the difference between the artist and the critic, between the athlete and the spectator, between the first and third person, that it is only through the first person singular experience of the living God that true faith is born. Lasting faith is sustained. Nothing else will affect a life, bring the unseen into the physical present with the impact of a lifetime of sunrises. That this experience is relationship expressed in caring, caritas, love, not caring as we normally define it, as giving or helping, but caring as identifying with, as pathos, as sharing so deeply in another's pain, suffering, grief, or joy, as to become indistinguishable from and part of, simply being present to another in the present, touching and being touched with no action implied or necessary. And finally, that this experience is a dance, an unrestrained jubilation that can't be contained in anything less, that God created this world in order to move into it and play with his creatures in fellowship, in joy, that the present is all God has, all God is, that to immerse yourself into the present is to touch and taste God's eternity, lost in the moment, 
No past, no future, no self, just joy, exhilaration, dancing, and when it passes, a vivid memory to keep. Let's pray. Father, thank you again. I guess, Father, I want to pray that we can heal as many of these gaps between our brothers and sisters as we possibly can. To understand each other is the beginning. Help us to become an unoffendable people that can accept the beliefs of others without being threatened in our own. That we can embrace other people and find the common ground between us so that we can connect more and more. So even though we're in the midst of a lot of division, Lord, make us the the ones who bring the diffusion, bring the the peace, bring the chance for connection and, and reconciliation. So take us into that place ourselves, Lord. Help us to see where our resistance still is, where our offenses still lie, and find ways to move through them into the unity and the connection that is you and is your spirit. And take us into that connection, Father, more and more. Help us to do what is needed to let go of whatever sacred cows we cling to to find that place of connection with you. Father, we love you. We love you. We want to more and more know exactly what that means and the fullness of what that means. Never let us forget that we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for hanging with me on that long one. Everybody stand.